Good job, buddy. You liked that, didn't you, huh? Yes, I did. You did. I don't blame you. I liked it, too. I liked it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Goosebumps up me. Well, that's probably more information than I needed, but I thank you for that. <laughs> you see, I don't know how so much talent got in that one family. I mean, you got him and you got Bubba. You know, they're brothers, you know, and then dad, too. Yeah. Does he sing? He started it all. He started it all. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Well, thank you very much for starting it all. Tell you what, that's great. That's great. I, I was afraid you're going to. Hey, I'm talking to you over here. Look at me. I, 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 saw you, I was standing back there. I saw you. I, saw, I was afraid you were going to get pulled out your concealed carry and shoot some rounds up through the roof up there. You have it with you, right? Uh, no, not here. No. Uh-oh. Okay. I don't feel as safe as I did a minute ago. <laughs> so if anything ever happens, this side here hit the floor because you'll get caught in a crossfire, I guarantee you. <clears throat> well, today we're going to finish our section on the uh, judgment seat of Christ. I think it, uh, I kind of took a little different approach to it this time. I, I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, the Bible talks about uh, persuading men in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 on it. And that's really what I wanted to try to do. I tried to stay out of getting into preaching on it, just kind of laying it out for you. And uh, not sure how well that worked, but I just uh, kind of wanted to walk you through it from a practical side and lay it all out. I gave you a verse last week that uh, I don't know if you marked it down. It's, it's one of those, looks like it's an insignificant verse, but I think it's a very powerful verse. And it was at the end of Philippians chapter 2. You remember 10 and 11 and 12, it talked about every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, and we tied that back in there. Down there in verse 12, it, uh, it says this. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's where, uh, you know, I want you to think about that today as we preach this last message. Uh, and then we're going to move on in the book of 2 Corinthians. But uh, that's a great verse. That verse simply says that it's up to you. Uh, once you get saved, it's up to you to work out your own salvation. Now, I know lots of people take that and try to make it works for salvation. That's context that at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's up to you once you get saved. I can give you everything on this planet. I can have all the... Bible, give you all the notes, <clears throat> teach it as well as I uh, can, and give you everything that you want. End of the day, uh, you have to work out your own salvation. You are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ giving an account how you worked out that day, how that you looked at what God did for you, and then through your life, work out and decide what you're going to give back and do for Him. And as I said, today I want to finish this great section, but I want you to keep that thought in your mind as we come through. Now, you should have, after last week, all the material that is laid out in these two chapters. And I told you that 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 are, are the two definitive chapters on the judgment seat of Christ in the Bible. And you should have those now. I also uh, broke down each section for you and provided that for you. So uh, if you're paying attention, you ought to have that done by now. And uh, we understand that uh, the two chapters come at it from a different angle. Chapter 3 deals with the practical side of the judgment seat of Christ. If you want to find out what you ought to be doing, the day you got saved till that day comes in your life, it's chapter 3. Chapter 3 details out all the aspects of you building your temple for God in a practical way. So that's a great practical chapter there. 
And then I told you that in chapter 5 deals with the other side of it. It deals with our perspective, how we should view that day, how we should philosophically take that day and understand it in everything in our lives. The balance of those two, getting the practical side and the perspective side, really gives you everything that you need in understanding that day. And I said, again, the single most important doctrine in the Bible for us as God's people is going to be the judgment seat of Christ. You know, our premier appearance as individuals before the Lord for the work of God that we were supposed to do in this body. Now, you'll remember last week I broke chapter 5 down into six sections. And those six sections uh, uh, gave us great insight in a practical way of understanding how this chapter uh, lays itself out. And I built that thing around six key words. You should have those words marked in yellow in your Bible uh, by now. And the first word was found in verse 3, which was the word naked. The second word was found in verse 4. That's the word burdened. The third word was found in verse 7. That's the word faith. The next word was found in verse 9. It's the word accepted. And then the next word, the fifth one, was in verse 10. That's the word appear. And then verse 11 was the sixth one, and that word was terror. From these six words, we saw uh, basically why some people uh, will lose all that they have uh, at the judgment seat of Christ and wind up appearing naked before God uh, at that great judgment. There's no question in our minds now, if you're just stepping into this today, uh, we've been here in it now for a number of months, there's no question in our minds now that the Bible says that some of God's people are going to wind up naked that day. I showed you last week, I think, probably the fundamental reason why that happens, the underlying reason. And uh, I, I, I kind of associate everything in my mind. And the reason why uh, last week, as I laid out, is and I, I call these Star Trek Christians, uh, Star Trek Christians. You ever saw the Star Trek movies, which I love? And I love the TV. I grew up when it was coming on fresh in TV when I was about 9 or 10 or 11. But the, my favorite bad guy group were the Klingons. And uh, in fact, I always kid Klingon. I always call him Klingon, you know, in our church here. But the Klingon, Klingon, the Klingons, yeah, the Klingons, the Klingons had a, had a tremendous advantage over everybody else. Their birds were, their, their planes or their ships were called birds of prey. And the Klingons were bad guys. They wanted to run the universe. You had the Romulans, but they weren't too bad. But the Klingons, they were, they were something else. And they had one distinct advantage over everybody else that, that in their arsenal. Anybody know what it was? Raise your hand if you know what it was. What was it, Wayne? They had a cloaking device. A cloaking device. And a cloaking device meant that they, they became invisible or they cloaked themselves that you couldn't really see uh, them till they were upon you. And that was the fundamental reason, if you remember, last week that I talked about that in, a, in the bottom line, end of the day, what's going to make God's people lose everything at the judgment seat of Christ and be naked is because right now they refuse to be open and honest and naked before God in their lives. Them, God's people today, much like the Klingons, cloak themselves. And I gave you the verse back there that talked about cloaking ourselves in maliciousness in uh, Peter. And that's exactly what is going to be the problem for many of God's people. <clears throat> God wants us to be open and honest in everything that we do. 
I told you that nakedness in the Bible, it has a bad connotation, which we all understand, but it also has a good connotation before God. Bible says that all things are naked and open under the eyes of him which we have to do. God sees right through every shellacking of veneer that we put on us, every stitch of clothes, everything that we try to hide who we really are, God sees right through it. And that's why we ought to be honest and open and naked in the spiritual sense before God today. And when we're not at that judgment seat of Christ, God simply takes that cloak away from us. Now that's the bottom line. That is really the fundamental reason behind it all. But today I want to finish this study, and I want to talk about, in adjacent to that, six things. Six things that you and I can do, or maybe not do. Six things that we as Christians can do that will certainly add to your dilemma at the judgment seat of Christ and certainly get you naked. Now, as you learn the Bible, and my job is to teach you the Bible, But as you learn the Bible and you put it all together, you're going to find that the key key to learning the Bible is basically a very simple, I call it the seven series. Uh, It's called the uh, seven series because everything in the Bible is built on a system of sevens. Seven in the Bible uh, is the number of perfection. God is perfect. So when God wrote his Bible, he did it in a series of sevens. In fact, God does everything by sevens. And as you start coming through the Bible, you're going to find because God is perfect and there are certain numbers in the Bible. And I I know you can prove anything with numbers. I know that. But there are certain numbers that are undeniable in the Bible and seven is one of them. And I started counting them one time in the Old Testament and I got to about 1,200 and I just gave up. They were just throughout the Old Testament alone. We know, for instance, that there's seven days of creation. When God created everything, he's a perfect, his creation was perfect, so he created it in seven days. When Noah went into the ark, we always think that Noah took the animals two by two. That's not exactly correct. He took the unclean animals by two, but the Bible says the animals that were clean, that were going to be used for sacrificial purposes, he took by sevens. So that's an interesting thing there. We know that there's seven years in the tribulation period. We've talked about it many, many times. You want to study angels in the Bible? You'll find that all good angels, God's angels, all have seven letters in their name. A perfect God created them. So it follows that pattern. You get into studying the feasts in the Old Testament. Moy, moy, what a job that is. (laughs) But you'll find that those feasts are all built on multiples of of sevens wherever you go. We talk about about, uh, man's history. And we know that from the Bible standpoint, the history of man runs, you might have guessed it, 7,000 years. You know, when you study music, and, and, and as, as Donnie played up here, Peace in the Valley, or whatever song you want to listen to, whatever style of music, music you like to listen to, you know that when you're all said and done, you only got seven notes in music? Only got seven. And you're going to find that, we talked about it before, that there's seven periods in church history. I took you back to John chapter 16 a couple of Thursday nights ago, and I told you the seven things the Holy Spirit of God does for you. And yet, I've told you how many times that we've studied it, oh, I don't know, two or three times since we started our church, that in, once you get saved, there's seven stages of spiritual growth that you go through. You see, seven in the Bible, seven in the Bible is always God's perfect number. So when you see that, you begin to realize that when God put his Bible together, when he, when he wrote the Bible, now I know that if you've come down 350 Highway, 
you're, you're now probably under the influence. There's a big billboard there. Do you notice the big signs the Catholics are putting all around the city? Well, now you're told if you're coming down 350 there, it's right by that strip club. I wasn't sure why that they wanted to put one there. But anyway, but right there about 350 before you get to uh, Nolan Road, there's a billboard there, and they're putting them all over the city. And it tells you that the Catholic Church wrote the Bible for you. And so, you know, so I'm not sure that's true. But anyway, but, but, but when God put the Bible together, he followed the same pattern. Now, I call this God's systematic theology. People think the Bible is hard. People struggle with the Bible trying to learn it. And basically because they struggle learning the Bible, it's because they're trying to learn it the wrong way. God has put his Bible around what I call a systematic theology. Uh, Years ago, many, many years ago, a guy by the name of uh, Francis Schaeffer was a great theologian. And he wrote, uh, he wrote uh, a a, a nine-volume book called Schaeffer's Systematic Theology. Systematic theology means that there's, he's showing you a system to theology. Theology is a word built off of the Greek word theos, which is God, theology, or the knowledge about God. You see, that's where the word comes from. And his systematic thought theology was nine volumes that this very brilliant guy put together that was going to systematically, systematic theology, teach you about God. And, uh, I, I, you know, as a young Christian years and years, I mean, 25, 30 years ago, uh, somebody gave me a set or I bought me a bottle set, I don't know, because I, I, I thought that, wow, this will really help me. It was the most worthless thing I ever bought in my life. If you could get all nine volumes together and bind them together so they wouldn't come apart, the best use for Schaefer's systematic theology would be a boat anchor. Uh, it, it's worthless when it comes to the Bible. Years later, or some time of that later, I found that it was so complicated. But I found within the Bible itself that God has his own systematic theology. And if you want to learn the Bible and you want to learn it right, you've got to get God's systematic theology. He throws shapers out the window. Because God, when he built his Bible, yeah, he built it around the number seven. So you want to start coming through your Bible, you'll find that there are seven mysteries in the Bible. Learn those seven mysteries. And you're on your way to be able to put the Bible together. You'll find there's seven distinct resurrections in the Bible. Study those seven resurrections, you're good to go. You'll find that there's seven barren women in the Bible. Seven women who can't have children, and then at some point in their life, they have children. They're pictures of the nation of Israel. You want to get a concept of where Israel's at? You study that. You'll find there's seven baptisms in the Bible. We've talked about this many, many times. In the Old Testament, there are seven key men who that you can learn everything about your Christian life from. You go back in the Bible in Genesis, you'll find that there's seven changes to this earth. You want to study the Garden of Eden, you'll find that there are seven distinct trees named in that garden. And lo and behold, there are the seven, uh, same seven trees that are found in, in, uh, in, when Christ shows up at the first coming of Christ. And there's a reason for that. When you learn that, you start putting the Bible together. There's seven things the Bible says that God hates. They ought to be the exact seven things that you hate. Most of God's people don't even know what they are. There's seven things that a Christian uh, should not be ignorant of. And yet when you study your Bible and you deal with people, those are the exact seven things that God's people are ignorant of. They have no clue. You'll find there's seven laws in the Bible. You'll find that there's seven marriages in the Bible. And they all picture what's coming the day that you and I marry Christ as the bride and the bridegroom. 
Yeah, and I think probably one of the most important studies, and I know many of you ladies teach this. Uh, Barb taught it to on Sunday, on, on Saturday to the ladies several times. I know that uh, many of you have taught that. Pam's taught it, and I know uh, Steve's wife has taught it, and others of you have taught it. And that is, I think, probably one of the greatest fundamental things that every Christian ought to go through is the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. It's incredible. You know after you get saved and you start to build your relationship with God, you know the Bible talks about seven things that you need to add to your faith. Seven's the key in the Bible. It's the key to God's systematic theology. And these are the way that you learn the Bible. This is God's uh, way he's laid it out. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 says, God is a rock. His work is perfect. And he is perfect in everything that he does. So he took that perfect number, and when he wrote the Bible and made everything in life, he built it on a pattern of sevens. You discover that pattern of sevens, start studying them one at a time, you're going to get the Bible together. You can forget Schaefer. I mean, uh, it, it, you just get into the Bible. Now, I said all that to say this. With all those sevens, we're studying the judgment seat of Christ. And yet, understanding this judgment is key to understand this. There's seven judgments in the Bible. There's seven distinct judgments found in the Bible. And the reason why I tell you that is because three of those judgments are connected to you and to me. Now, the first four are great to study, and they'll really help you with the Bible. You have the judgment of the nations found over there in Matthew. The judgment of nations takes place when Christ comes back at the second coming, and he judges the nations. We've talked about that many times on Thursday night. You have what we all know to be the great white throne judgment. That's the judgment of unsaved dead people at, uh, at the great judgment, the last judgment found in the Bible in Revelation chapter 20. You have the tribulation period. We talk about it all the time. But the tribulation period is God's judgment on the nation of Israel. And then the Bible talks about that someday at the, at the great white throne judgment where all the unsaved people stand and be judged, there's another judgment that is part of that, and that is the judgment of all the of fallen angels. So the first four are incredible uh, things to study, and they really help you with the Bible. But the last three are for you and for me that make up these seven. And the first one is the fact that uh, what I call the judgment of you and I at, uh, at Calvary's cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he judged you and I as a guilty sinner. And the first judgment that fits for you and for me, all these other four deal in the Bible, but they don't deal with you and me directly. The ones that deal with you and me directly are these three. And the first one is the fact when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you and I were judged as a guilty sinner. When a sinless man died on the cross for you by his death, he judged me and you as a guilty sinner before God. And we're stuck with that judgment. Now, you know what happens. You hear the gospel, somebody wins you to Christ, and you get saved. When you get saved, then God changes it all about you. And I told you earlier, there's seven things that changes the day you get saved. One of the things that changes the day you got saved is how God looks at you. Before you were saved, God looks at you as a sinner. After you get saved, God never looks at you as a sinner again. Now he looks at you as his child or his son. You're a son of God. That's vital. 
This is why so many people run around being afraid that they're, they're Christians and they're afraid that God is going to send them to hell or take their salvation away. They don't understand the application of these three judgments. When, you, when Christ died on the cross, you were judged as a guilty sinner. The moment you got saved, you're no longer a sinner in God's sight. Now you're his son. So you know what? God doesn't deal with your sin the same way. He now doesn't deal with your sin as the sin of a sinner he now deals with your sin like a father deals with his child. And then the third judgment is the one that we're studying right now. And that is the judgment seat of Christ. And there's coming a day because you got saved that you're going to be judged uh, for what you've done for the Lord. Now, I'm really big on finding short ways to remember, remember hard things. And I, I spend my whole life, you know, looking at things and trying to break them down where I can grasp it. When I look at these three judgments, and I've given you this before, but there's a lot of new people here. But when we looked at this judgment, many, these judgments before, I broke it down to you this way. And it's so easy to remember. Three little words, sinner, son, and servant. You see, when he died on the cross, he judged you as a sinner. Once you get saved and you live this life and you don't do right, he's going to judge you. But he's not going to judge you as a sinner, he's going to judge you as his son. But when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, he's not going to judge you for your sins. They were taken care of at Calvary. He's not going to judge you as a son. That was taken care of right here. No, at that judgment, he's going to judge you as a servant. And this is what we've been studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The things done in the body. A lot of people confused on that understanding God, how God views us and deals with us in these three judgments is really what constitutes the success or failure of your Christian life in, a, in its basic form. If you don't understand how God views you, then you're going to go through life with a misconception of God because you don't see how he really looks at you. And boy, the devil's going to have a heyday with that. So just remember that simple little format, sinner, son, and servant. When you, Christ died on the cross, we were judged as a sinner. And uh, you were guilty. I was guilty, going to die and go to hell. But there was a day in my life when I got saved, as there was in many of yours. At that point, you're no longer a sinner in God's sight. Now you're his son. So when, he, when you step out of line or I step out of line, he doesn't come down and deal with us like he did before we were saved. Now he deals with us as his son. But there's coming another judgment that we've been studying the last couple of weeks that has nothing to do with your sin before you were, uh, before you were saved. It has really nothing to do with the things in your sin that you do after you are saved. It has to do with one thing. Did you, after you were saved, figure out what God did for you and then give back to him based on what he did for you, a work? That's all it is as a servant. It's real simple. It's real simple. Now, along with that, I want you to understand this. There's two types of rewards that you get concerning uh, these three judgments. The Bible talks about crowns. And uh, the Bible names five crowns in the New Testament. Five crowns in the scriptures that are going to be handed out at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is really important to see and understand them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, 26, and 27, you have a crown called the incorruptible crown. What is that? That's a crown that is given to you and me at the judgment seat of Christ because we stayed free from the world. That after we got saved, 
We recognized that our body was the temple of the Holy Ghost. We never went back to the world, never got one foot in with the world. We simply kept our body as clean as we could, as pure as we could, and, and keep it from being corrupted with the world. And we did the best we could do. And you know what you get when you get to the judgment seat of Christ? And God looks at the service. He looks at what you did. He'll give you a crown because of the fact that you stayed incorruptible. And that's, that's very important. That's very important. The second one's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And this is one that everybody ought to get. This is one that everybody ought to have. It's called the crown of the love of his appearing. If you really want God to come back today, if you really want Christ to come back right now in your heart, you already got a crown for it. You know what? That'll be the crown that the least Christians probably get because nobody really wants him to come back. They really don't. The third one is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. And this crown is called uh, the, the, the uh, shepherd's crown. It's, it's one given for teaching the Bible. And many of you teach the Bible. Many of you disciple people. This is why I push and push and push. You get involved in ministry. My job is to try to help you get as many of these crowns as I can. And simply loving God, loving wanting to come back, wanting that be the desire of your heart will get you a crown. Now, I realize it's kind of hard to stay from the world sometimes. I understand that. But is it hard to love God more than anything else in the world? Well, that's a dumb question. Sure it is. But it shouldn't be. Feeding the flock, teaching people the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 talks about the soul winning crown. That's when you get for winning people to Christ. We have a Thursday night Bible study, and I, I give an invitation, and every head's bowed and every eye closed, and, and I ask you to pray, and somebody raises their hand, they're not saved, and I ask you to pray. If you all pray for that person, and that person gets saved, if there's 200 people in Bible study that night, and 200, 200 of you prayed, 200 of you got a crown. It's that simple. It doesn't mean you have to be a Billy Sunday and go out and hold great revivals. There's so many ways to win people to Christ. Without opening up a Bible, I'm telling you, open up the Bible is key to it, but that's not all there is to it. And then the last one, the fifth one, is found in James chapter 1, verse 12, and that's called the martyr's crown. And that's the crown that is given out because people, they actually give their life for the gospel's sake. And then along with that, the second aspect of that will be the, what the Bible calls our inheritance. And it's really important to understand the difference between these two. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says this, and we talked about this verse just the other night on Thursday night, not last week, but I think the week before. It says, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Now, what does that mean, dead with him? Dead to the things of the world, you see? The incorruptible crown. If you're dead to the things of the world, then you're alive with him. You can't have it both ways. You can be a Christian and be as dead as a doornail spiritually. Because the Holy Spirit of God will have nothing to do with you as far as your everyday life. Oh, you're saved and you're on your way to heaven. But this is the faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Then he says this, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, we will also deny us. And of course, the passage there is talking about denying us a reign. Now, here's how it works out, or it looks like it works out. The crowns are associated with the judgment seat of Christ. The inheritance is associated with the millennium for that thousand years that we either reign with Christ or we're naked before that world for a thousand years. 
and he comes down to the aspect of denying uh, ourselves and, and being alive to him. It says, if we suffer. Well, we know what that is now because we started 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 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 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians, we found that the ministry is suffering. There is no suffering for God outside of ministry. You say, well, you don't know what I went through. You went through it for yourself. I'm not saying you didn't go through something. There is no legitimate suffering for God outside of ministry. Now, you got to get that. You may not like that, but that's just the way that it is. Ministry is suffering. We already know that. And there's no suffering for God that's legitimate without it going through ministry. You say, well, I know so-and-so got cancer and she, she suffered. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that in ministry. If you get cancer and you're in the hospital, my God, do you know what you continue to do in the hospital? You minister. You may be able to minister better with cancer than you couldn't minister without it. Don't you get that? Somebody says, well, so-and-so is in the hospital with cancer. They're really suffering. I'm not saying they're not suffering. And I don't know the person or their circumstances. But my point is this. There is no legitimate suffering with God outside of ministry. Now, you could be somebody who lived your life and did what you want to do all your life and you get cancer and you suffer through it. But you're not suffering because you're in ministry and God can use that as a ministry. You're suffering for whatever reason. There's a difference between the two. And I understand people don't get that. People don't get that because they don't like to hear those things. But that's just the way that it is. You know, it's so simple to understand. So with all that in mind, We want to close out this chapter today, and I've given you the other details about the crowns and the inheritance and how all this thing works. But let's close out this study today, and then next week we'll kind of move on into the rest of the chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Now, the last note, if you would look at my wide-margin Bible, the last note I have in my Bible on this uh, is simply six things that you can do or not do uh, to lose your rewards, lose your inheritance, and wind up and appear naked, as the Bible says. Now, four of these are found in the passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of them is found in the book of Revelation, and the other one is found in the book of Galatians. But let's look at these, and we'll make some comments on them, and then, you know, we'll get on with our day down and restart. Well, the first one found in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And it says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon our house which is from heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us today to see and glean from this great passage all that you have for us. We do love you. And we ask that you'll you'll stir up the hearts of God's people. And, uh, Lord, that you'll uh, make it all clear to us today. We love you and thank you now. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the first thing that can happen to us that will cause us to lose all that God has for us and appear uh, there naked is to lose your emphasis of life. You know, emphasis is everything. And in this particular case, emphasis means the effort you have. I mean, it's just that simple. Uh, Your emphasis, in this case, in building the temple of God. You know, to emphasize something is to focus on something and to make it the main thing that you do. In short, we are in life what we emphasize in life. It's real simple. You know, life only, uh, life appears to be complicated. 
And when we get out of fellowship with God, we want to make it more complicated. I hear people say all the time, ah, you don't know, you don't know, understand my circumstances. You understand my situation. I probably understand it better than you would like me to. Life is not complicated. We make life complicated because we get the wrong emphasis in life. And it's just that simple. And people don't like that, but that's the way it is. You know, you see it, uh, we just finished the Olympics. And I didn't watch a lot of the Olympics. I I, I just didn't for whatever reason. But I would catch it on the news. and, And I'm happy. I think I like the fact that America kicked the Chinese's rear end. I think that's good. Uh, you know, and I, I like that. And I, 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 I get emotionally charged when I see these kids out there that, that really do well, you know, and all the pressure they must feel and all this stuff, and they perform flawlessly and all that. But you know why? You know why those people in the Olympics really do well? You know why? The, and, they, you know, we're studying the book of Corinthians here about the judgment seat of Christ. I told you that the judgment seat of Christ the great uh, is, is built on the life, the Christian life is built on Paul's understanding of the Roman Olympics back in his day. So it's very apropos uh, that it all kind of goes together and that's where we're at in 2012. Because those kids got the gold and those kids got the silver and they got the bronze. Much just like at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says they do it for a corruptible crown. We do it for a incorruptible. You see how it works? But the thing that makes it work for them and makes it work for us, but is really a good illustration today, is the emphasis they put on their training. You don't really think that one of them just got a book and read on, on, uh, on the high bar, you know, and then, uh, and then went out and did it. You really don't think that one of them took two or three classes, you know. Like I heard a singer one time, and she was terrible. And the guy asked her, he says, where did you, where did you learn to sing? And she says, well, I took it through a male correspondence course. And he says, man, they sure lost a lot of your mail, didn't they? <laughs> you don't just go take a couple classes and then go out on a high bar and swing around and turn a circle up on top where you're standing up there and swing back around, let go, catch the back bar, and then flip around for there for a while, throw up in the air, and then do nine spins and come back and stop. You don't do that unless you put a lot of emphasis on that all of your life. The gym I go to up there, uh, Extreme Fitness, we would have the track where you go around on the back side. They have a little, a big gymnastics thing and there's kids in there all the time. And I watch these little girls that are probably Maddie and McKenzie's age. And they're, they're running down this long track and they're just, and they're doing vaults on their hands and then they're coming up. And I mean, it's impressive what they do. And I watch how that they hook them up to those things on their hips so they can jump up without killing themselves and it catches them and all that stuff. But they practice and they practice. You know why at the Olympics people came away with the gold? is because that was the emphasis of all their life, to do and be and master that deal. You know what will get you gold at the judgment seat of Christ? Same thing. Your emphasis and what you put it on. It's safe to say that you are today in life what your emphasis has been in life. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. And there's a story. I mean, uh, when it comes to God and the Bible and learning it, the, the one thing about it is when it comes to getting it all, we're all on the same footing. Now, and it's really the only thing in life I know that we're all equal in. I mean, some of you have higher IQs than others, and you're smarter than others. Some of you went to college, and you got an education, and you understand things on a higher level than other people. That, that, I understand that. Some of you are great at sports. You have a great ability at sports. Others don't have such a great ability. 
Some of you have, you know, your IQs run from 175 down the scale to subplant life and everything in between. <laughs> Everybody's different when it comes to that. And I, you know, you see it out there in the volleyball. Some people, you know, they're great volleyball players. They're, I mean, they got moves that I believe. Other people, you know, you hit the ball after it's went pie you. You know, you just don't have the deal on it. But when it comes to the Bible, none of that's true. I already showed you and told you a couple of weeks ago how every man, when he gets saved, has the same measure of faith and grace. You know what makes some of you better than others? Not because you're better than others. It's because of your emphasis has been different in your life. When it comes to the Bible, folks, it's real simple. And I hear people all the time, all my life, well, I don't get anything out of the Bible. I don't get anything out of the church. I don't get anything out of Thursday night Bible study. I don't get anything out of Sunday morning. I don't get, you know why you don't get anything out? Because you don't put anything in it. I mean, it's just that simple. There's a story in the Old Testament about a woman. And she hasn't got any money. And the bill collectors are going to come. and are going to take her kid and take everything she's got. And the man of God, the prophet, comes up to her and he says, it's a great story. And he says, you know what? Go borrow all the containers that you can borrow. And when she comes back, she got everything that she could get. And they keep being filled up with oil. And so she's selling the oil. And when I look at that story, I think to myself, the prophet told her, when he told her to go out and, and, and borrow the pots and pans or the 55-gallon drums or whatever he told her to get, he clearly tells her, borrow not a few. I got that marked in yellow in my Bible. You know why I told her to borrow not a few? Because she could have as much as oil as she got the containers for. Because God's power and what God has for you is unlimited. It's not God that limits it. It's our limited. You know what? I got a book here. I got a book here that if it was water and you were dying of thirst and your family was dying of thirst. I mean, take for instance that, that everything happens and, and everything goes up, belly up and, and, you're, and you're, your family's dying of thirst and you have no water and the water shut off. And, and I got over my house 100,000 gallons of water. And your family is dying of thirst. You're dying of thirst. Your kids haven't any water for three days. You're, you're in desperate shape. And I call you up, and, or you see me, and I say, hey, you come on over. I got plenty of water. When you came over to me to get water because you really needed the water, would you bring a quart jar? Hey, this Bible, every page has 100,000 gallons of water of truth. You know why you don't get anything out of the Bible? You know why some of you leave here and say to other people, you know, I don't get anything out of that or I don't get this or I don't get. Do you understand why that is? I'll tell you why it is. Because you've got a book here that's got 15 billion millions of water. And when you came to church today, you bought a mason jar. Some of you didn't bring anything at all to put any water in. You only get out of this what you put into it. Your emphasis on it. And you only get out of what God has for you by what you bring to take it home with. And that's just the way it is. Emphasis is an incredible thing. Incredible thing. Your life today is exactly, whether you like it or not, and this is why people like to cloak themselves. This is why some of you have been saved 5, 10, 15 years. You've never read through the Bible one time. 
You've never yet won a soul to Christ. When somebody in your family is sick or dies or has some problem, you have to call somebody else to come to get what God saved you to be able to give them to do. I see it all the time. And you know why that is? Because when you came to church and the water was being poured out, you brought your thimble. That's all you wanted. It's the way it works. I hope you guys don't mind me saying this. Uh, uh, I, I don't, didn't ask you before, but my, and I was putting this together through this week. I had two great examples of that this week. Uh, reminded me of this. Joe Wood was coming over every other week or so, and he wanted to go through the book of Acts. And I, I, he, first time he came over, uh, you know, he, it was clear that he was going the wrong direction with it. And it wasn't that he didn't have a desire. He really wanted to. It was his tactics that he, 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 he was going at. And so I sat down and I said, Joe, I said, this is a great book and you really need to learn it. But if you want to learn this book, here's the way you got to do it. Because you are spinning your wheels doing it this way. And you don't know how many people I've told something similar to that about something else in the Bible. Not just that book, but Whatever. And so two, three weeks pass. He comes back this week and he says, okay, I, I did what you told me to do. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to listen to me now before I ask my questions that I want you to see. And I mean, it was bang, 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 bang. Right down the line, right in the structure and the order it was supposed to be. And I'm sitting there thinking, now that's the difference between putting an emphasis on it and not putting an emphasis on it. You know how many people, and I don't mean to blow Joe's horn over here because Joe just, you know, but I'm just telling you. I don't know how many people I've told that to. I don't know how many people I've told that to. And you know what? The next week they come back with the same stupid stuff. <laughs> you know why? Because they won't put the emphasis where it needs to be. That Bible's got 100 million gallons of water. You got a thirsty soul. Why did you come when the water is being passed out and you bring What? That's the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem. Some of you have lost the emphasis about God. There's some of you that it was a time in your life when you, I remember, you used to come and sit down with me. You had an emphasis about God. You don't have one anymore. There's some of you that used to have an emphasis about the Bible. It was the number one thing in your life. It, it doesn't mean anything anymore. There was a time when ministry was everything for you. You wanted to work with people. You wanted to do this. You wanted to have that. And you did. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And I'm telling you right now, wrong emphasis or losing your emphasis will get you naked as sure as I'm standing here. And I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It's just the way that it runs. It's just the way that it goes. All right, the second thing. The second of the wings found, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. He says, for we are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon uh, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for this selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, because of what he just said, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Uh, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, this one here uh, deals with the wrong attitude toward the things of God. 
and uh, this is how you look at something. Where the other one was the effort you put into something, this is how you look at it. Now, I know you probably already know this, but if you don't, I'm telling you, attitude is everything. Our attitude will always define who we are. It really will. Uh, I gave you the simple principle that you'll use in counseling and dealing with people all the time, attitude and action. Bad attitudes or wrong attitudes will always produce wrong actions or bad actions. Right attitudes will always produce right actions. There's a process of developing the right attitude. You don't get saved and immediately have the right attitude. When you get saved, you immediately have the tools to develop the right attitude, but got to work out your own salvation. Got to work out your own salvation. Developing your attitude, good or bad, will always be based on what you put in your mind. You're either going to put the book in it, get the right attitude, get the right action, or you put the world in it, get the right, wrong action, get the wrong attitude, wrong action. You've got to have a value system of what really matters. You've got to have Bible principles or worldly principles. You'll have one or the other. Either way, they, they form our attitude, which always leads uh, to our actions. You know, and I, God's people today have uh, wrong, bad attitudes about just about everything. I meet God's people all the time, have all of my life, that have the wrong attitude about church. To them, church is a convenience. To them, church, uh, I mean... When it talks about effort and it talks about attitude, you have to ask yourself a simple question. Why are you here today? That's a profound question that you should answer to yourself today. Why are you here today? Why are you here today? Do you just come to listen and then go? I mean, do you come and bring your little thimble to get whatever water you want and leave the rest on the ground? Why are you here today? It's a simple question. Why are you here? Are you here because your wife dragged you here? Are you here because you knew I'd ask you this week, where were you? Hey, just tell me. I won't ask you anymore. Why are you here today? Are you here because you want to be with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Are you here today because, you know, you just like to get out? Are you here? Why are you here? If the answer is anything else other than I want to develop the right attitude to get the right emphasis, you're here for the wrong reason. Do you know why some of you get mad at what I say sometimes? Because you're here for the wrong reason. Hey, in my ministry, my father, Lord, boy, you talk about getting dressed down on a regular basis. But it didn't bother me. You know why it didn't bother me? Because I, I knew what reason I was there for. And I knew he was right. People get mad at me when I preach. You know why they get mad at me? And they get mad at me all my life. But I'm used to it. Because I come to turn with it. I know why people get upset when I preach hard messages or messages. You know why they do? Because I point out to them the obvious. Nobody wants to see the obvious. The obvious is obvious, where your emphasis is and where your attitude is. For church, church, many of you is a convenience. You come when you have nothing else you got to do. Or the first little thing. Now, I understand you got vacations and you got this and things come up. But I'll tell you what. There are some people who never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity not to come to church. You know why that is? Got the wrong attitude. God, people get the wrong attitude about the Bible. That's why they never study it. They never read it. They come around and say, well, I don't get anything out of it. Well, why would you? You don't put anything into it. 
You know, last week, our, the thing, we all dream about this. What was it? $350 million in the lottery someplace? $350 million. And I'm telling you, all, I bet you, I bet you, I bet you half of the people that are saved people I, 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 I would say to themselves, man, would I like to win that? And I bet you even some of God's people went out and bought tickets. And, you know, and there's some preachers that preach on that. You know what? But I guarantee you, if you want it, they'd take your tithe and they'd change their message. I guarantee you. I just play it safe. If you want it, come see me afterwards here. I'll, I'll chew you up in private as I take your tithe check. But anyway, <clears throat> I look at that and I think to myself, we all do it. We think $350 million. By the time you pay taxes, you still got $250 million left. Can you imagine having $250 million? It almost makes you excited when you know you're never going to get it. <laughs> Just to think about what you could do with it if you would get it. That $350 million is garbage. That book's worth $350 billion for every word that's in it. How come I don't see God's people lamenting over the fact I want to learn that book and daydreaming about learning that book like they daydream about winning $350 million in the lottery? Why do they think about what all I could do if I had this money and they never think about what I could do if I had that book? See that thing? I know you don't like that, but that's me, Mr. Obvious, Master of the Obvious. That's me. Some of God's people get the wrong, wrong attitude about people. There's some people you like and there's some people you don't like. You know what? As a, as a Christian, you don't have that option. No, I don't like what some people do. But I always view people and their rottenness through my own rottenness. It kind of tempers my attitude about it. In the ministry, if you're somebody who is a minister, especially when you get into counseling, and I don't mean this in a bad sense, you need to be a professional in what you do. When I deal with people in the ministry, I'm a professional. I'm not talking about professional in a worldly sense. A professional way I approach things. I know people are going to be messed up. I know people are going to do stupid things. I know people are going to do absolutely asinine things that if I let it will drive me up the wall. I know people are never going to get where I want them to get as fast as I want them to get. I know that. But you know how I keep from getting upset with them? I just look at all those years that I was the same way. When you get to a point in your life where you become a professional, and again, I don't mean that in a bad sense, professional in your approach, you get the right attitude toward people. You realize that people are people. I mean, you realize that people are going to do some of the dumbest things you ever did in your life. And you have a tendency to want to write them off. You have a tendency to want to just say that there's nothing good about them. Well, you know what? In the end of the day, there wasn't anything good about me for about 40 years. And 20 years of that was absolutely worthless. But God didn't give up on me. And, and, and there was a man in my life that saw all of my frailties and who I was and where I came from and all the things that I was stupid at. And you know what? He was at the place in his life where he could have just threw me off and said, you, you do this wrong, you do that wrong, you don't do that right, you don't do this right, get out of here. Well, where would I be today if he would, if he would have done that? See, you can't ever write people off till God writes them off. You and I aren't God. We've got to have the right attitude about it. People do stupid things. 
I agree with Bob Jones Sr. The more I'm around people, the better I like dogs. I understand that. But you know what? That's not a reality in the ministry. Not a reality in the ministry. People are going to be people. And we got to deal with it as professionals, realizing that that's what we have to do. You know what that comes back to? Wrong attitude about it. I, I, people, God, people get the wrong attitude about ministry. You, how do you go through? After God saved you and died for you, how do you honestly... How do you honestly go through your whole life, 50, 40, 60, 70 years, and never do one thing for him? You know how the answer is to that? Wrong attitude about it. Attitude is everything. Attitude is everything. You know, you talk about your life. It's all about you. It's all about what you want to do. It's all about how much money you want to make. It's all about how, what, what things you want to get. You know, I hear people all the time, they get excited about things of the world. Look at this house. Wow, look at this car. Look at this. Look at that. I just wish one time somebody would come up and say, look what I found in here. I'm tired of looking at cars. I'm tired of looking at boats. I'm tired of looking at this and that, what excites you. When are you going to find something in here that excites you? I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to say to you. I just don't. Some of you have the wrong attitude about your family. You have a, as a father, you have a tremendous responsibility to your family. Some of you have a, a wrong attitude towards your wife and being the spiritual leader to her. Some of you wives have the wrong attitude towards your husband and developing, you know, your role as a wife. Some of you have the wrong attitude toward your own kids. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. You got the verse wrong. You just train them up and away they go. There's a difference. You know what the difference is? Attitude about it. Bible says, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. You launch those kids into life. And whatever they hit in life is where you're at. And you know what? Parents convey, they don't even know they do it. Parents convey their attitude to their children. And the kids develop the attitude of the parents. I, I don't know if you understand this or not, but there's a thing called degenerational degeneracy. Degeneration degeneracy. It simply means that every generation is worse than the last generation. Everything in this world goes down. Every generation degenerates. And if a parent doesn't keep his finger or their finger on the button, their kids are going to wind up worse than them. For instance, I see it all the time. You know, my, genera my generation came to the place where when I was growing up, nobody did drugs when I was growing up. The goofy kids, the hippie type kids, the, the clown did drugs. Nobody smoked marijuana when I was in high school. I mean, they drank beer maybe and did other things, but the drugs was never a part of it. The big thing in my day was cigarettes. And you used to see them because they roll a cigarette up in their sleeve pocket up here like that. And you could see it sticking out underneath of it. The big deal was sneaking out and having a smoke. And you see, that generation, that's what they did. But when the automatic law of degeneration comes in, 
The next generation, my, I have parents all the time. You know what? Well, I, I, I just, you know, my, my kid's smoking marijuana. My kid's smoking this or smoking that, smoking that. My kid's smoking that. And I look at them and I, I, I say to them, you know what? You know why they kids smoking marijuana? Because you're smoking cigarettes. And in your generation, that was accepted. And you think it's Vogue Christian to smoke cigarettes? I mean, you probably call them holy smokes. I don't know, but you think it's okay. Well, your kid doesn't see the difference between your cigarettes and their marijuana. They don't. All they see is mom smokes, dad smokes, they smoke, I'm going to smoke. Their generation don't give them cigarettes anymore. Them generation, because it has degenerated, give them marijuana or worse. Generational degeneration. Parents don't see that the things that they do, the attitude that they have, you convey them right to your kids. And your kids come around, you know, you don't care about the Bible. You don't get in ministry. You don't do anything for God. Let me give you a headline. Let me give you a ding-a-ling for your Liberty Bell. Let me show you something here. You don't get it straight. You don't get it down. I'm telling you, your kids aren't going to get it down. They're just not. I heard that a while back. I've been waiting six months to use that. It's, it's, it's what happens. Your kids are going to be what you are. It's just the way it works. That's why it's vital, absolutely vital, when they're two, three, four, and five to develop the right attitude that they got because when they get 20, 18, 19, and 17, you're never going to touch them. But then you have something to build on if you build it right. You build it right. Every parent ought to have marked in your Bible, Daniel chapter 1, and have laid out as an outline the evil day that's coming to your child. But you know what? He ain't going to do it. Ain't going to do it at all. You're not going to do it at all. You take your kids and you tell them it's all right to play sports on Sunday instead of come to church. You put those things in their life. You teach them that that's okay and you'll give this. I, I, I got some parents in this church that absolutely guarantee you that they'll, if their kid wants to play a little league or play this or play that, they'll tell the coach, you know what, they can do it, but they're not going to be at the game on Sunday. You know why? Because when you teach your kid at that age that it's okay to do it, when they get 20 years old, they're going to look back on that, and that's exactly the attitude they're going to form. Because church isn't important. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Wrong attitude, man. That'll get you naked as a jaybird at the judgment seat of Christ. Then the third one, verse 9. Wrong goals in your life. Wrong goals in your life. That's the target you have in your life or what you want to accomplish. William Carey said something when he preached back in, all the way back in 1792. He preached at the Friar Lane Baptist Chapel. And he preached a sermon that had two points. You know what they were? The first point was expect great things for God. And the second point was attempt great things for God. You know what's wrong with God's people today? They have no goals. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. The goal in your life ought to be the same as the goal in my life as a Christian. And that is whatever I got to do and everything I try to accomplish, that I want to be pleasing and accepted to him. That's my, should be my only goal in life. And I'll tell you something else, too. When you make that your goal in life, when that becomes your goal in life, that just about solves every problem you're ever going to have. 
Life's not complicated. Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, parents who have no spiritual goals in life will produce no goals for their children's lives. Pastors who have none for their church will produce people without any spiritual goals in their life. It's just that simple. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And if you look at verse 17 before you get to verse 18, the context there is your children. Providing a vision for your child is giving them goals. My job up here as a pastor is to provide vision for you. And when I do that, it constitutes goals in your life personally that you want to accomplish. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. It's the way it works. Wrong goals produce the wrong attitude that produces the wrong action. Setting goals for yourself and for your family. You have any goals for yourself? Have any goals for your family? Have you ever sat down and explained to your children what those goals are? Well, I know some of you are young Christians, and maybe you're not that far along yet, but I'm telling you. I told you last week, God is for you. When God is for you, nothing can stop you. When God is against you, you ain't going nowhere. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, who them that are called according to His purpose. Not yours. Not yours. Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Anything in life, your life or my life, other than His purpose, will be of no purpose. Somebody said one time, life without God's purpose is limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. That's all that it is. Bunch of working parts with no, uh, most of God's people in Christianity is like a machine that has 100,000 moving parts, but it doesn't do anything. Then the fourth thing. And this will be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Wrong perspective. Now this one's how you see yourself. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. When we get to this passage down here, we've not really got to it yet. I'm going to bring you through the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. But I'll tell you right now, the number one issue for God's people is simple, not seeing themselves as God sees them. And that's why you get the wrong perspective of who you are, who you really are in Christ, your position in Christ. You see, people grow up with a perspective about themselves. Many times it's, it's underinflated. They get an underinflated picture of themselves. I've dealt with people like it all the time. They had bad parents. The parents verbally abused them. Dad always told them how stupid they were. Sometimes mom did too. People would tell them how ugly, how worthless they were. And you know what? When they grow up to be 20 and 22, that's how they view themselves. Many times people in abusive relationships, that's, how it, that's what happens. Uh, I've seen girls go from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship, and every one of them is an absolute disaster. You know why? It all goes back at how her parents formed her attitude about herself, and what she's looking for in somebody else puts her in that situation every time. Then you have the ones that are overinflated. Their bad parents gave you everything you ever wanted. They pressured you to be better than everybody else. They told you you were better than everybody else. They built a superior complex in you, and you wind up being an arrogant snob. You think you're better than everybody else. You see, the Bible, the Bible's perspective always gives you the balance. Uh, I mean, the Bible will give you the self-confidence that you need. The Bible will give you the drive that you need. The Bible will give you the motivation that you need. It'll give you the self-worth. It'll give you everything that you need to give you the superior confidence of being who you are in Christ. But 
At the same time, it also tells you you're a servant. And that balances out who you are. You know, there's such a thing that we find in the physical world with different professions. We call it the God complex. Three real professions have a God complex. The first one is doctors. Doctors, they have a God complex because they, they hold life in their hands. And you can't bring somebody from the brink of death. You can't go in when somebody is ready to die and fix it. And if you don't balance that out, after a while, you get so superior about yourself because you hold, or you think you hold, life and death in your hands. You develop a God concept. In other words, it puts you so far from the common people you, you deal with. That's why people love a doctor who is friendly, who spends time with you, because most of them won't. Most of them don't even remember who you are. They see you, uh, they talk to you, they tell you they're not in there any longer that they have to be, or you're in their office no longer than they have to be. They'll stack up patients like planes at O'Hare trying to get in, and they'll run you through and not ever really care about you. You know why? Because they develop this God complex. I'll tell you the second group that does that is lawyers. It was always jokes about lawyers. Somebody said, what do you call 10,000 lawyers drowning at the bottom of the ocean? A good start. Why do they have such bad reputation? Many of them do the same thing that doctors do. They don't hold life and death. They hold many times your liberty. They hold you getting out of a situation you're in. And you're at a great disadvantage because you can't do it yourself like you can't heal yourself. So you're dependent on them. So after years and years and years of solving people's problems and doing all the things that they do, because they don't have a balance in the thing, they get that God complex. That they, that's why they, don't, they, they walk around like they're living in another world. You're, they're up here. You're down here. They're, they're something special. You're nobody. And they walk through life doing all the things that, uh, you know, that the doctors do. I had a doctor friend of mine one time, and this guy was about as arrogant as you could ever have. He didn't like me, and I didn't like him. And he was a Christian. And one of the reasons why he didn't like me is because he was a doctor of psychology. And I was always ragging on it and all those things. And, and we, this, is, this is the arrogance of this guy. Now, when we went out to a restaurant to eat, and you go in there, and they seat you, he would go up to the woman who was at the thing that was seated in the seating, and he would say, my name is Dr. So-and-so. If I have any phone calls here today, please allow me to know. <laughs> Nobody would call this clown. <laughs> he was the most terrible person with people's problems that she ever could have. But you see, it was arrogance. He wanted this woman to think, oh, we have a doctor. Well, if somebody had a heart attack or somebody passed off and they yelled, is there a doctor in the house? He wouldn't even be able to stand up. He was a psychologist. <laughs> but he wanted to pretend. He didn't say, well, I'm a psychologist. If anybody would call me. This would have been more apropos. I've learned that word this week, too. I'm not sure what it means, but I think it fits in with what I'm saying here. It would be much better if he would have said, hi, I'm a psychologist and I'm a terrible one. And nobody ever comes to see me. Well, I am a doctor. If somebody would call for me, please let me know. Well, I could live with that. 
I'd go outside and call him and just hang up, make him worry about who it was, you know. Oh, no, no. He's got to go in and say, I'm Dr. So-and-so. If I have any calls, please let, if anybody calls for me, please let me know immediately. Oh, yes, yes. They think he's a brain surgeon. They think he probably does heart transplants. No, he's a two-bit little quinky pie guy who couldn't whip his way out of a wet paper bag. Arrogance. Now, I'll tell you the third one. You got doctors, you got lawyers, and you got preachers. You see, where doctors hold life and death and lawyers hold your liberty, preachers hold your spiritual well-being. Now, that's why in most churches in this city, in most churches around this country, if you would go to that church and you had a need, you couldn't talk to your pastor if your life depended on it. You know why? He don't deal with you. He's unapproachable. You know why? Because he's God and God is unapproachable. That's how they think it. You got to have the balance. You know what brings that about? You know what makes that happen? Wrong, wrong perspective. Wrong perspective. That Bible, sure, you're a son of God. You're an aristocracy of heaven. You got all the great things that God has, but you're a servant today. You're a bond slave, knocked down on a block, bought for a price. But that's the way it works. Well, the fifth one. The fifth one's found now in the book of Galatians, and this is wrong doctrine. This will get you. Wrong doctrine. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for the instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. First thing is profitable for is doctrine. Now, bad doctrine in the Bible is likened to leaven. And leaven is what you put in bread. If you remember Exodus chapter 12, when they had the Passover back there and they roasted the lamb, and it's a picture of Christ being crucified for you, they had to eat bread, but the bread couldn't have no leaven in it. Leaven in the Bible will always be a picture of bad doctrine. You find the example is in the, in the book of Galatians, where Paul says, a little leaven leaveth the whole lump. In this particular book, here's what's happened. Paul started this church... He got this church grounded in the Word of God, and then some people come in with heresy. They're called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers came into this New Testament church that was built on the New Testament principles and started telling them that, look, it's okay to believe in Jesus Christ, but you've got to keep the Old Testament law. You've got to have both. And Paul spends that whole book laying them out, taking them apart, and showing them how foolish they are. And he calls the bad doctrine leaven. And boy, there's a lot of God's people to get the wrong, to get the wrong doctrine. And that wrong doctrine is going to get you naked at the judgment seat of Christ. Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, one of my favorite passages. It's a great passage. It says, another parable spake he unto them about the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leaven. Now, that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible that shows you why Bible Christianity today is in the mess that it's in. And God's people were in a mess right along with them. Because of leaven. That verse tells you, if you can go back to the Bible, you find out who that woman is, you find out who three the measures of the meal is, and you find out how that leaven corrupted the churches and put that whole thing in a mess that it's in today. Through leaven. The demise of Christianity and the church has happened for one fundamental reason. Bad doctrine creeping in. And boy, it'll destroy God's people and has destroyed God's people. The leaven today has, has, has leavened the whole lump. The church is completely in a mess, and God's people are completely in a mess. It's going to take the judgment seat of Christ for some of you, of God's people, to realize what you have in this church. 
And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the book that God's given you. It's going to take the judgment seat of Christ for some of you to finally get it through your brain what God gave you and put you here. And you know what? It's going to take the judgment seat of Christ for you to finally realize the price that was paid for you to have this church, have that Bible that you so richly like to criticize. That's what it's going to take. That's what it's going to take. Wrong doctrine. That'll mess you up every time. And that's why it's important for you to learn the Bible. First thing he says is doctrine. Get the doctrine straight. That's the great thing about the book of Romans when we studied it. He told us what the church was supposed to believe. And I'll tell you what, God's people believe just about everything they want to believe today. Their Bible is not what they carry to church. For many of them, their Bible is what they get off the Internet. Boy, they believe it, and you can get it all. Well, the last thing, the last thing. The last thing is wrong association. This is the people you hook up with. This will be Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. And boy, you better get this one down. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell in Jerusalem. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take your crown. Boy, you better mark that one. That verse says that a man can take your crown. You better look at it. And brother, a woman can take it from you too. That over 35 plus years of ministry, boy, I've seen it all. I've seen it all. You know, I'm, I'm really without excuse. I, I, you're in bad shape. I'm in worse shape than you are. Because I don't have any excuse. Not that you do either. But for 35, 40 years, I've seen every mistake that every Christian's ever made. I've, I've seen it from the inside and out. I've understood it. I've got to understand it, how it works. I've seen every bad choice, everything, every busted thing that went wrong. I have absolutely no excuse because God has allowed me to see it. And I want to tell you something. You may not like this, and you may, but it's the truth. If you don't want to do right with God, and you don't want to do what God wants you to do, this church is the worst church in the world for you to be in. Do you realize what you're going to stand and give an account of with the judgment seat of Christ? I mean, you think you've got to put up with me every week? Will you hear what I've told you every week and you do nothing with it? What are you going to do in that day? At least if you were out someplace else, you might be able to feign stupidity or ignorance, but that won't even work then. But don't you understand the day you stand there after all you've heard? It's going to be a day. Work out your own salvation. I mean, that, that day is going to be the reality check, man. It's going to be a day that that thing, you stand before him and you're going to give an account for everything you heard and what you did with it. And that verse said, some man is going to take your crown. Hey, I, I've, seen, I've, seen, I've seen people lose everything they've got. I've seen young ladies sell their birthright. I've seen young men give, lose everything they were going to have for God. Because they married the wrong spouse. I mean, I'll tell you what, I've seen it in every scenario and every situation. There was an old 50s TV show that most of you older people remember. And it's a good philosophy. It was an old show. It was called Father Knows Best. Remember that? Back in the 50s when television was still good stuff to watch. Father Knows Best. That's good advice. Your father knows best. Doing it your way is going to always screw the thing up and cause it to be a problem. I've seen young men go off to Bible college 
And instead of being grounded and rooted in a book, has his faith destroyed in it and lose all that he had in the judgment seat of Christ. I've seen pastors take the milk toast approach to ministry. Little fruit pie preachers with hosting Twinkie cream for a spine and little ho-ho cupcakes for a brain. I mean, they, they come to the place where they never take a stand. They'll always be concerned about their image, what people think. Uh, they don't want to make anybody mad. Uh, it, it just, you know, they have the wrong motive. They have the wrong perspective. They have the wrong doctrine. They have the wrong goals. They have the wrong approach. They have the wrong emphasis. They have the wrong attitude. Let no man take your crown. I told you about the seven suicides last week. And I told you that three of them were uh, uh, spiritual suicides. You had to study the one that I didn't give you. You had to study the one I didn't give you, if you can find it. And there's a picture of a man who commits suicide, and the guy that's with him commits suicide right alongside of him. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of pastors and churches where somebody won't get out of the church because it's bad. They won't get out of the church because the guy's not teaching right. And that guy commits spiritual suicide, and the congregation goes right down the tubes with him. You betcha. You betcha. You betcha. Listen, I've seen Christian young men and young ladies get saved and start to grow and then hook up with that Christian crowd of non-committed, no work, no ministry, and watch those Christians take away your crowns. Absolutely. They'll teach you anti what I'm teaching you. I tell you it's right to come to church. They'll say it's okay to go someplace else. I tell you it's right to do this. They'll say, oh, don't worry about that. And you know what? Human nature always wins because you look at them and you say, well, they're a Christian and they do it, so it must be okay for me to do it. Well, we'll see about that at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You're a fool. I'll say it again. After salvation and you learn, uh, you leave the world and all of its filth, the number one area you need to watch out for in your life is the mixed multitude Christians uh, who don't care anything about the things of God, who just care about the things of themselves and all the things of the world and care absolutely nothing about doing anything for God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, 11, the last warning in the Bible. The last warning in the Bible. You know what it says? Be careful no man take your crown. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Now, I told you earlier in this message there was five crowns. Now, the last thing I want to say before I'm done today is turn over to Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. And I've tried to persuade you through this thing. I know that some of you are unpersuaded. Some of you are going to do whatever you want to do. Wouldn't matter what says. You're not going to get it straightened out to the judgment seat of Christ. But I'm telling you, anyhow, that's my job. Revelation chapter 14, 10. It says down in that verse that somebody's casting their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Now, if you read Revelation chapter 4, you'll realize that the rapture took place in 4.1. And by the time we're into 4.10, we're down there at the judgment seat of Christ. And here's somebody coming to that throne room, and they're casting their crown down at his feet. You see, that's his day. It's called the day of Christ. It's called the day of Jesus Christ. It's his day. It's all about him and what he did for us. And then it's about what we did for him because of what he did for us. He gives you those crowns. And all of your life, you should have what? 200, 300,000 of them? All your life, 40, 50 years. Now that you've seen how easy they are to get, you ought to have what? million of them? And on that day, when you stand before God and the whole world finally realizes the price that was paid for you, what a great thing that's going to be in itself that you figured it out and did what you were supposed to do. 
And when you walk into that throne room before the assembled universe, and it's your turn to go in, and it's your premier appearance, and you walk into that room, oh, I know right now it doesn't bother you. See, five minutes from now, you'll be back what you want to do. Right now, you can blame it on me, see? But in that day, it'll just be you and him. You and him. You and him. And when you walk into that room, your attitude, your motive, your emphasis, and everything about you is going to be displayed. And it's all going to be found in the crown that you got. And when you come in, the Bible says, we cast those crowns at his feet. I personally cannot think of anything, anything more terrifying to me and more tragic to me personally than walking into that room, fully knowing now what he did for me, fully understanding now what I did not do for him. And then before the assembled universe, got to look into those eyes, see those nail scars in his hands and feet, that scar in his side, fully understanding the eyes of love that he had for me and what he did, and then have to look at him with nothing in my hand. Because my life was about me. My attitude was about what I wanted. My emphasis on what I wanted to do. I didn't have time for ministry. Or I did, and then I got out of it. I got away from it. Oh, you cloak yourself in all kinds of excuses. That day the cloak will come off. And your hymnal there. There's a song that was written so many years ago that that's why I love that hymnal. The name of that song is simply, And Must I Go? And empty-handed. It says, must I go and empty-handed? Thus my dear Redeemer meet. Not one day of service give him. Lay no trophies at his feet. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? O oh, ye saints, arouse, be earnest, up and work while yet tis day. Ere the night of death overtake thee, strive for souls while still you may. Must I go and empty-handed, thus my dear Redeemer meet. Not one day of service give him, and lay no trophies at his feet. That's what it's going to be. Now, that sick feeling you feel right now, and I see it on your faces, that sick feeling right now, because you know deep down inside, it's a sham. You know right now, deep down inside, it ain't real. You know right now that you've thrown it away. You've lost it. You've lost your emphasis. You've lost your attitude. You've lost your motive. You've lost everything about it. And you're standing in danger of losing everything that day. And right now, because I, for a few moments of time, corralled you into a room and held you captive and then made you look at that day and you know how you feel right now. Well, let me just ask you folks, if that is not a brain test, give me a break. If somebody like me, who's just a guilty sinner, who deserves to die and go to hell, that has a halfway motive with a halfway attempt, who can halfway understand the Bible, if a little pipsqueak guy like me can get you doing that and feeling that, my God, people, what are you going to do in that day? What you ought to do now, you're going to go in empty-handed. 
You're going to go in empty-handed. You're going to go in empty-handed. You got the wrong effort, emphasis in life. You got the wrong attitude in life. You got the wrong goals in life. You got the wrong perspective in life. You got your doctrine screwed up in life. And you got the wrong friends in life. Those things will get you naked. And then add to it the deception, the cloak you put around you. How you so much pretend that you're okay when you're not. How you, how you, 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 you might as well, I mean, you might as well go get a, rent a billboard and put your name on it and list the fact that you're out of fellowship with God because you do not hide those things. And in that day, the cloak comes off. And what should be naked and open to him today, but you just won't let it happen, will become open and naked not only to him, but to everybody there in that day. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's what we're supposed to persuade men of. And I'll leave you with that last verse. Work out your own salvation. He saved you. You have to take what I said today and you have to decide if you're going to change your life and do something with it or thumb your nose at God and go your own way. Work out your own salvation. Father, we do.